Welcome to the Untangling Life Podcast with Rachel Wojo. I'm Rachel, and this podcast is where you'll find the space to clear your head and calm your heart. Make yourself at home. Welcome to episode eight of the Untangling Life podcast. I'm Rachel, and I'm thrilled to have you listening in today. This podcast is the result of the incredible support of the Rachel Wojo Bible Reading Challenge community, and I'm so thankful for each and every one of you. Thanks for being here. No matter where you're coming from today, let's dive right in. The name of this podcast is Untangling Life, and today we're untangling the hard work of forgiveness. You've heard the expression, if you come to the end of your rope, tie a knot and hang on. I think a lot of us look around the world we're living in and apply this saying in a warped sort of way. It's hang on to a knot, not a grudge. We're standing around holding on to that grudge like our lives depend on it. We base decisions with lifelong impact on that grudge. Don't judge me for this, but I am a Cinderella fan. I know it's kind of cheesy and, well, should a grown woman really romanticize that much? But that blue ball gown Lily James wears in Disney's 2015 Cinderella, dreamy and exquisite. Although I enjoy the grandeur of the film and all the whimsy and fun, the depth of this movie comes down to one pivotal moment for me. After the loss of her dear mother and her wonderful father, after how unfair her life has been, after how cruelly Cinderella has been treated by her stepmother and stepsisters, Cinderella leaves her stepmother with one short victorious phrase, I forgive you. The power of those three words cannot be described in that moment. Cinderella knew she did not want to live her new life with any grudges. The pureness of her heart dictates that the future should be lived with no regrets and no burdens. If you've never seen the movie before, I'll put a link to the clip in the show notes. However, I titled this episode, Please Pardon Our Mess. Because the truth is, we all have messiness in our lives. It wasn't just because Cinderella's always cleaning up messes, right? People, we have junk. We're human. We struggle and make wrong decisions. We say things we don't necessarily mean. The words just flow out of our mouths without a filter. We type things we have to go back and delete or should delete. Sometimes we stop and think, where did that come from? At least that happens to me. Maybe not you, but I'm confessing today I mess up. And I work with and live with people who mess up. So if we all mess up, we all make mistakes, we all say things we regret and do things in a way we wish we hadn't, then why do we find ourselves holding on to the mistakes? When someone mentions even the word forgiveness, we think, but you don't know what she said to me, or you have no idea how hard it is to go to church when people are so insensitive, or I'm never going back there because... In my book, One More Step, I share some of the hard spaces I entered into as the mama of a special needs child. I was innocently unaware of how cruel people are when it comes to someone who is lesser than they are. When I was growing up in the 70s and early 80s, the word retard was thrown around in slang. We even said, oh, that's so retarded in casual conversation. But when I became the mama of someone others would consider mentally retarded, suddenly that word had a different meaning to me, and I stopped using it altogether. When I hear someone say that word in any form, even nowadays, it cuts my 
ears and my heart. I wanted to share a little excerpt from chapter 9 of One More Step, Ditch Your Carry On. Becoming a mom to a special needs child expanded my world like never before. I wouldn't have guessed how many people spoke harsh words over those with special needs or purposely neglected to help those with extra physical or mental requirements. The Sunday school teacher who thought I didn't want to help my child was only the first to openly criticize my parenting skills. I truthfully never would have dreamed that people of all ages and stages could fail miserably to give grace to a little girl with a disease she never requested, but they did. One particular incident happened at school in the early years of Taylor's developmental issues. At this stage of her disease, she was extremely hyper and flitted from activity to activity with little focus. Daily life was a huge safety challenge. At the time, I was working a full-time office job, and each day after preschool, a babysitter would pick up Taylor from school and care for her for a few hours. When the babysitter stopped by the school to get Taylor, the teacher said, Good luck with her today. When the babysitter shared with me the teacher's remark, it stung. I understood her frustration and personal limit of patience, but that teacher had college degrees as a specialist in early childhood education. She was supposed to be a professional. When Taylor was a little older, but still quite the busy girl, we encountered an issue in the grocery store. Matt and I had nicknamed her Elastigirl because her hands were unbelievably quick. While we laughed about her grabbing habit at home and guarded plates of food any time we walked past her, others didn't understand her requirements for personal space. One day, as I shopped for groceries, Taylor sat in the shopping cart seat. I talked to her to keep her busy and attached toys to the cart in order to keep her little fingers preoccupied. While I turned away to find a particular item from the shelf, a woman pulled her shopping cart right next to Taylor and left it there while she walked down the aisle. Taylor's quick instinct kicked in and she grabbed the loaf of bread from the top of the woman's cart. Before I knew what had happened, the woman began to scold Taylor. Why did you do that? She said, don't you know any better? When I heard the woman's hateful tone, I turned toward her in shock that she had the audacity to scold Taylor. I could feel the rage boiling inside of me, but somehow managed not to return her scream. I looked at her with both disgust and pity, and though I remained calm externally, the words I chose to hurl back at her are not ones I typically choose now, nor should I type them out in this book. Like winter hibernation had just ended, the mother bear in me broke out. The problem with all these comments and negative situations was that I carried them around like baggage. They followed me and haunted me and flat out made me angry. When others made poor decisions many times due to ignorance over Taylor's behavior, I harbored bitterness in my heart and sometimes lashed back at their words or actions. For a couple of years, I struggled over dealing with these types of negative scenarios. I felt justified in my responses, and sometimes I was. At times, I wish I could have an easy life like they did, but I didn't realize all the dead weight I carried from resentment. It took several years of being a special needs mama to begin to understand how I had unnecessarily burdened my heart. I wasn't harming anyone else by holding on to the nasty things that people said about my girl. Not only was I unable to leave my burdens with the Lord, I was adding on to the burdens, increasing the load. 
So the big question is, why do we hold on to grudges and how can we take steps to release them? First, I believe we have to recognize that holding on to the grudge is damaging to our soul. I'm not saying that forgiveness means you open yourself up to anyone and everyone. There are boundaries we all must set in our lives and relationships. Can I get an amen? But when someone has done wrong to us, hanging on to that knot for dear life isn't going to save our own. And in fact, it further damages us, our potential, our influence, and our legacy. Maybe you're asking, what if I'm not ready to forgive? My friend Susie Eller has an incredible resource devoted entirely to the topic of freeing your soul from the grip of grudges. Her book, An Unburdened Heart, taught me so much about forgiveness, and I recently found the need to revisit it. I'd encountered a situation where I had not done anything wrong that I could recognize, but someone else felt that I had deliberately wronged them. Afterward, I found bitterness trying to sneak in over the situation a bit, and I wanted to remember Susie's words. Listen to what she says about how to move into forgiveness when you feel like you aren't quite ready. Susie shares, God meets us where we are. He kneels in the dust beside the broken woman. He goes out of his way to help the lame man stand to his feet. He traveled across tumultuous waters and stood in the gate of a cemetery to loose the chains of a man bound by torment. Setting people free is the very reason he came to earth. When we start the process of forgiving, we simply ask God to meet us right where we are, whether that is day one of the injustice or day 10,220. It's also asking him to fill the void. As you take steps to forgive, there will be an empty place where anger used to live. Robert D. Enright, in his book, Forgiveness is a Choice, wrote, I believe when the resentment leaves, that place should not be left void, but instead can be filled with positive feelings. Although this may seem impossible, we have found in our research that in some of the hardest cases, people were able to achieve full forgiveness. Enright studies that positive feelings came as people helped others, as they supported those harmed in the same way, or as they joined to prevent it from recurring. There are thousands of organizations that have emerged as a result of turning a negative into a positive, and these are helpful and needed. While helping others is a powerful response to injustice, what do you do when the task is complete or you or you are alone without the busyness? That's when forgiveness is invaluable because this type of forgiveness is a joint effort. It's a supernatural reserve graciously given to us from which we can scoop what we need to give to others. It's you and God in tandem. This is the key to forgiveness. This is where we fall short when we say to people, just forgive. Susie is so right about all of that. After we realize that forgiveness is the right next step and we open ourselves to the concept, then we can allow God's healing to begin to work in our lives. When we recognize that the grip we hold on the grudge is actually harming us, we can loosen our fingers and start to embrace the freedom that forgiving offers. I'm reminded of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings 8, where he offers his first prayer of dedication in the temple of God. The prayer is fairly lengthy, 30 verses long, but there is a phrase he repeats, hear from heaven and forgive their sin. He outlines situation after situation, 
and ends each with, God, we need your forgiveness. But all the way down in verse 39, there's a new phrase he adds into the prayer. And when a prayer or plea is made by anyone among your people Israel, being aware of the affliction of their own hearts and spreading out their hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Forgive and act. Deal with everyone according to all they do, since you know their hearts. For you alone know every human heart. And I love the way that little phrase is just slipped in there in parentheses because I think Solomon was saying, God, you're the only one. Only God knows if the words of your relative were intended to hurt you or if they slipped out unintentionally. Only God knows if that friend premeditated her actions or just responded in a human act of rashness. Only God knows if you are harboring bitterness because you don't want to forgive someone who truly wronged you. Only God knows the heart. With that in mind, why not give someone the benefit of the doubt? Now, for those of you who are listening and you've walked through deep pain because of someone's sin against you, this may sound good, but you know it's a lot harder to do. When you've lost a loved one because of someone else's choices, like driving intoxicated or rape or murder, then forgiveness has to seem so, so hard. I personally can't wrap my head around it. So to try to understand this type of pain, I did a little research because I remembered hearing the story of a woman who had forgiven her son's murderer, and now he was her neighbor. And more than a neighbor, she had made him her son. I had to dig into this story because it seemed so unbelievable. I researched and discovered several stories about Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel. Hopefully I'm saying his name right. On February 12, 1993... On February 12, 1993, Mary Johnson's only son was murdered by 16-year-old O'Shea Israel, and he received a 25-year sentence for second-degree murder. As Mary shares her story, she explains she initially did not want to forgive this man who had killed her only son. O'Shea had been serving several years of a lengthy sentence when a book Johnson was reading fell open to a poem entitled Two Mothers. And I want you to pause for a moment and listen to this poem, Two Mothers, by Velma West Sykes. The city slept, and in the burial place, slept still more soundly its inhabitants. Indifferent to the early morning calls the birds were sending out, there in the gloom that lingers from the night to tent the day, two women met. Both paused, for each well knew some great emotion brought the other forth, like as herself at this hour of the dawn. They were not young, but care and grief had added more lines than time to each sad, stricken face. They spoke, those strangers, and as both were tired and felt the need of company, perhaps seated themselves together on a rock and gazed into the east's approaching light. I could not sleep, the first one softly said. This is the day of which he used to speak, saying he would return, my son, I mean. They crucified him yonder on that hill. Two nights ago, I never knew his crime, and even Pilate wished to let him go. But at the last bowed to the priest's demands. Your son was Jesus, asked the other, then and caught her breath as if sudden fear. 
My son was Jesus, softly said the first. Folks often wondered why I named him that, but I could not explain to everyone, nor could I understand all that he did, and things he said would often puzzle me, even when he was small. These past few years I have not understood why he must do the things that caused his death, as he had never, as he had known they would, and often spoke of it to me. Have you a son? The other's startled face paled, as she said, I had one, but he too died three days since only. He hanged himself. Ah, said the first, but did his enemies stone him and spit upon him, call him vile names? No, was the answer. Even the friend he wronged forgave him, but your son had many friends who suffered with him on his way to death. My son went all along to hang himself, nor had a single friend to stay his hand. Poor boy, said Jesus' mother. How I wish he might have known my son. He had a way of healing people's spirits, and perhaps he might have kept your son from doing this. He always said he died for others. Strange how much he wanted death, yet shrank from it. Tell me, why did your son wish to die? He had betrayed a friend, the other said. And afterward he felt such stark remorse, he vowed he could no longer bear to live. I know it must seem strange that I should say my son loved this friend with a love he gave no other, yet a stronger power within him impaled him to betray the friend he loved. Tell me, said Mary, clutching at the hand that grasped the woman's shawl, who was your son? The other bowed her head and slowly spoke. His name was Judas, Judas Iscariot. Back to the story of Mary Johnson's only son. That was the poem that Mary read, and she shared on multiple channels that she felt the Holy Spirit was speaking to her, saying, I want the mothers of murdered children and the mothers of children who took life to get together and heal. And Mary says, she replied, nope, can't do this. (laughs) Good heavens, I know I'd be the same way. I'll share a link to the Winona Post article of the story of Mary Johnson and O'Shea Israel, but some of it explains that Mary spent a long time feeling like she was called by God to talk to Israel and at the same time being totally unwilling to do so. Her explanation is that it took a lot of things to get me to the place where I am today. Prayer, church, and reading all played a role, she explained. I really want to meet Mary and Oshia someday. Anyone else? I love that Mary's secrets to healing so that she could offer forgiveness are ready and available to us today. Prayer, church, and reading all played a role, she said. This month, we're walking through the Desperate for God Bible reading plan and journal. 31 prayers of men and women in the Bible, people who in their moments of desperation chose to turn to God before anything or anyone else. On day six, we will read Exodus 32, 7-35, the story of the children of Israel royally messing up. Their sin was grievous toward the heart of God, and Moses knew it. But he also knew that the sins he had committed were deep, yet God had forgiven him. Remember, Moses, the greatest leader of the people of Israel, was also a murderer. So he asks on their behalf, No matter the sin, God still longs to see each of us live as he created us to live. He forgives. 
We can ask again today and start new with hearts focused on his will and his way. The prayer from the Desperate for God Bible Reading Plan and Journal is titled, A Prayer for When You've Made a Mess. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for straying away from what I know is right, for choosing to ignore what I should do and for doing what I shouldn't. God, I am sorry for doing wrong, for lacking faith, for failing to trust you in the wait. There is no sin so great that you cannot forgive it, and so I ask you now for forgiveness. Help me rely on you fully, especially when I'm tempted to look for answers in any direction but yours. Let me lead others to your holy ground. You've forgiven me. May I offer the same forgiveness. Amen. I've been asked before about mine and my husband's relationship secrets. How have we stayed together through such hard things? And my thought is usually, how could we not stay together through hard things? I think the difficulties of life have made us cling to one another. You have that choice, you know. Let the hardness of life come between you and those you love and pull you apart or allow it to push you together. If I could name one good decision we've made throughout our 21 years of marriage, it's been to forgive one another. Has it always been easy? No. Have we hung on to the knots that we shouldn't have a few times? Yes. But we do our best to live out Colossians 3.13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. If you've listened to more than a couple episodes of this podcast, then you probably recognize I love Corey Ten Boom. She has such a succinct way of summing up what I've been trying to say throughout this podcast. She said, Forgiveness is the key that unlocks the door of resentment and the handcuffs of hatred. And that, my friends, is today's thread of hope. Each episode of Untangling Life concludes with a segment called On My Desk. This week on my desk, I have the resources I've mentioned in this podcast, and they will be included in the show notes. First up, I shared an excerpt from my book, One More Step, Finding Strength When You Feel Like Giving Up. Secondly, Susie Eller's book, The Unburdened Heart, is such a beautifully healing book on freeing your heart from the burdens that are not yours to bear. I highly recommend it. Also on my desk this week, though not mentioned in the podcast episode, Praying Mom by Brooke McLaughlin. This is a beautiful book about making prayer your first and best response to motherhood. I also always have on my desk my large print purple leather bound NIV Bible, just in case you're interested. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great day. God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Untangling Life Podcast with Rachel Wojo. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, be sure to subscribe. For show notes and free resources, visit rachelwojo.com. See you again soon. Are you concerned about tensions in the Middle East? Do you wonder where we're currently at in the biblical timeline? Are we really in the last days? Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Carl Muller with the Inside the Epicenter podcast. Every week, my co-host, best-selling author Joel Rosenberg, and I answer those questions and more. You'll hear inside knowledge of our meetings with leaders at the highest levels of government in the U.S., Israel, and the Middle East. 
equipping you to filter the news with biblically sound insights. Find Inside the Epicenter on your favorite podcast app or go to joshuafun.com to listen and subscribe.